You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What are the special challenges in managing diabetic peripheral neuropathy? Joining us to discuss the management of peripheral neuropathy for patients with diabetes is practicing physician in the Division of Podiatric Surgery at Kaiser Permanente Santa Clara Medical Center in Santa Clara, California, Dr. Craig Wargon. Dr. Wargon, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Dr. Edelman. Well, Craig, let's jump into it. Our listeners really want to know about how to pick up peripheral neuropathy and how to treat it. So let's first talk about what are the range of symptoms that people can have? And I think that makes it so confusing sometimes because it can change over time. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. Um, and I would say that uh, the peripheral neuropathy, as we both know, unfortunately is extremely common in, in uh, people with diabetes and even people who don't have diabetes. I frequently see people coming in with, like you said, a range of symptoms that include things such as numbness, um, it includes pain, The pain can be uh, both uh, during weight-bearing activities and during night, Uh, and pain at night is often a hallmark of of, uh, peripheral neuropathy. The other things I commonly see with peripheral neuropathy is is, um, people have a sense of what I call dysesthesia, which really means they have an altered sensation in areas of their foot. They oftentimes come in stating that they feel like a wad of sock is, is stuck underneath their their toes and they're always kind of looking in their shoe or they're, they're feeling their foot and trying to understand why they're having this strange sensation. And I know this can keep people awake at night. One of my patients said to me the other day that just the sheets actually cause pain on their feet and they have to sleep with no covers. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the differentiating factors that I often use to diagnose this condition. Is when people come to me and say they have symptoms and the symptoms are, are not related to weight-bearing activities, not related to walking or activity, um, and they say that it occurs both at night and when at rest, uh, then I have a high index of suspicion of uh, peripheral neuropathy. Now, what about the end-stage symptom, which is lack of sensation? Isn't that where most of the problems come along when leading to amputation? Yeah, and I wouldn't actually call it a, a complete lack of sensation. It's really a lack of what we call protective sensation. And uh, as you know, and some of our listeners may or may not know, we use uh, a test, which is a, a something called the Sims-Weinstein monofilament test, and we use that to determine if the patient has enough sensation that they would know if they had some trauma or some noxious um, event happen to their foot. So, it, again, it's, a, it's a, a threshold that people reach where they don't have enough sensation that really provides them adequate protection to the environment. That's a good topic to expand on. The folks that are listening, they don't have much time. What's the best way for them to pick up a patient at risk for developing an ulcer? And and I know that the, I usually call it the 10-gram monofilament. Is that the same thing that you were referring to? Yes. And, and um, basically, this is a really simple uh, little tool that they can get um, uh, at, well, you probably know how to get it better than I do, but you can usually pick them up at, at any uh, uh, diabetes conference or any um, health supply store. And it's simply a, a a very quick way of assessing whether a patient has 
sensation using this little tool that looks like a, a fish wire, basically. And we just asked that we put we touch their areas of their foot with this monofilament and ask them if they feel it. And if they don't feel it in, in multiple areas, especially in their forefoot area, and especially in the, the bottom or the plantar aspect of the foot, then they would be at high, at risk, high risk for developing an ulcer and potentially an infection. I would always have a high index of suspicion with any of your diabetic patients that they may have in, in neuropathy. And, you know, what we always recommend is that in the annual physical exam, the patients, uh, you have your patients take off their shoes and you take a look at them and do this quick uh, test. I presume that the longer you have diabetes, the more you're at risk for peripheral neuropathy, and there's many different etiologies. Let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, as I know in medicine, there are more, there are so many causes of neuropathy, and I think it's helpful to know them so that you can treat those etiologies if it doesn't really look like classic diabetic neuropathy. Yeah, absolutely, and we we see uh, neuropathy commonly in diabetic patients, of course, but we also see neuropathy commonly in, in patients at large without diabetes. Other causes of neuropathy, of course, are things like um, uh, alcoholism or alcohol use. Um, hereditary factors uh, leads to idiopathic neuropathy. Uh, exposure to um, environmental substances can lead to neuropathy, and sometimes we just don't know what causes it. Some people uh, it, at higher age have a higher risk of having neuropathy. So I see it quite commonly, all different uh, levels and types of uh, symptoms in the population at large. Yeah, I know that a lot of our veterans uh, were exposed to Agent Orange, which can cause neuropathy. Um, I understand even smoking and, and certain vitamin deficiencies like vitamin B can lead to neuropathy. So there's a long laundry list. Well, that leads to the question, you know, can we prevent neuropathy in our patients with diabetes? Are there proven strategies? Well, I think that uh, it goes without saying that the, the literature supports the fact that having uh, a tight glycemic control and, you know, keeping your A1C levels down below 7 um, leads to uh, um, less development of neuropathy and, and some protective measures against developing neuropathy and other diabetic uh, complications. So absolutely, you know, I as a podiatrist are always looking at my patient's A1C and, you know, reinforcing the fact that they have to keep their uh, diabetes under good control. I've always wanted to ask, and patients ask me all the time, if you have a certain degree of neuropathy, can you reverse it? Or does it depend on how extensive the neuropathy is when you start therapy? You know, um, that's a good question. And um, what I do see with neuropathy is that the symptoms tend to do change over time. And um, I think that there's always a chance that there could be some, some improvement of the systems, uh, symptoms. And people don't always have that. If, if they come in having intense pain, um, that doesn't necessarily last forever. So I would encourage those patients as well to, you know, get under uh, better glycemic control. And I have seen some uh, instances where the neuropathy does um, uh, improve or, or lessen somewhat over time. Yeah, and I think it, it really depends on uh, how extensive the neuropathy is, but certainly improving diabetes control can help reduce other complications as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Craig Wargon. We are discussing the management of diabetic peripheral neuropathy. As I understand it, there are different therapies depending 
on the symptoms the patient may be experiencing. And of course, we know there's a wide range of symptoms. Yeah, well, I think one of the most important things is, is to uh, allay your patient's concern a little bit and come up with a diagnosis. You know, patients, patients are always uh, anxious when they don't know what's causing their symptoms. And I oftentimes um, see patients and, and, and also get this also from the, my primary care colleagues, People tend not to believe that this is neuropathy, and they want to believe that there's something wrong with their foot. And I just saw a patient yesterday that thought for sure he had something wrong with his bone, and he was constantly feeling his foot for a problem, when in fact the symptoms really uh, you know, led me to believe that, that the, the problem was neuropathy and not a problem with their foot. So I would say one of the initial things that I try to do is, is to try to tell the patients that you know, this is neuropathy, that, it's, it, that it can be controlled, again, with good glycemic control and good f- foot care techniques, and, you know, oftentimes that helps. Well, let's talk about some of the actual therapies, whether they're over-the-counter or prescription. Let's, let's start off with capsaicin cream, which is a derivative of cayenne pepper. You can even rub it on some of your food if you wanted more spices, I understand. <laughs> I don't think so. But capsaicin cream is, is something that has been used successfully, and it is helpful for some people. It's over-the-counter now. It's kind of a local irritant, and it's, it, it, it acts to stimulate some of the other nerves, which tends to, you know, uh, the theory is that it can block some of those um, aberrant nerve signals that are occurring in the peripheral nerves. So that is helpful for some people. What kind of symptoms would you have that would make that therapy applicable? I think people who have the, you know, uh, sharp burning pain, sharp pain or burning pain, or even the pain, the kind of sensation where they feel an altered sensation of their foot, sometimes the capsaicin can help. Now, what about the the old medications, the tricyclic antidepressants used in, in lower doses? I know when I was a resident at UCLA, God, many years ago, we used to use those at low dose at night. Are they still used? Absolutely. Those are some of the most effective medicines that I uh, currently see. And even though it's an older medication, it can still be extremely um, helpful, especially for patients who say that they can't sleep a full night. So I usually start with a, a nortriptyline. I usually start with 10 milligrams for a first week, and I have them uh, increase their dosage up to uh, uh, 10, I mean 20, 30, or even 40 milligrams on a weekly basis until they get relief. And that's actually uh, increasing the dosage slowly helps to reduce some of the, the side effects that the drug could have if you started it too fast. Well, what are the side effects? Oh, the side effects of nortriptyline are some of the anticholinergic side effects, such as a dry mouth, constipation, and whatnot. But usually when it's started um, and tapered up like that, then those are mostly avoided. Also, if it's taken at night before you go to bed, um, the people will probably feel less drowsiness in the morning. Yeah, and I think these doses are certainly much lower than we used to use them when we treated depression. So it seems like the side effects are pretty low with these folks. Absolutely. I always tell my patients that, you know, even though this was a drug that used to be used for a depression, we now use it for its neurotransmitter effects that's in the peripheral nerves. And, um, and, and again, it can be very effective. Well, you know, it's interesting, the relationship between neuropathy and depression, because there is a, a new medication called Cymbalta that works on neuropathy and depression, as well as uh, another medication called Lyrica. Let's talk about those two new ones, and when would you use them, and when are they helpful? Yeah, so those uh, two new medications also can be very effective. I usually use them as, as a second-tier um, uh, medication when the old tried-and-true medications such as um, uh, nortriptyline or gabapentin have been proven to be effective. In patients that have extremely 
difficult neuropathy, sharp stabbing pains, and the pain is so debilitating. Do you ever go straight to Vicodin, and how long do you usually need to use that for, or Percocet? Um, that, I would say, is very rare in my practice. There have been a few times where I've, I've used that, and I certainly wouldn't hesitate to use that, um, you know, used judiciously for people who are really having a hard time. But again, I think that using the other, the other techniques that I've mentioned um, and the other medications that I've mentioned, I would say in my practice, I really have to go to that extreme. I would like to thank our guest, practicing physician in the Division of Podiatric Surgery at Kaiser Permanente Santa Clara Medical Center in Santa Clara, California, Dr. Craig Wargon. Dr. Wargon, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.